Awesome. Well, thanks for the kind words, Tim. And I was thinking two things as I was sitting here this morning. Actually, three things. Thing one, this gym is awesome for kids, right? It, in between services and after, they can just go play. I love that. Thing two, I was thinking, these musicians, their instruments have voices, don't they? Isn't it amazing? I was just so blessed by that. So if you were part of that team, thank you. Um, three, I was thinking, um, thanks for your word of repentance, Tim, about that. But I was thinking about how Tim is such an encouragement to me on our staff team as someone who's really always is looking out at the mission of God. And um, it's just fun to see, um, just even to hear about this, op- this new elementary classroom opening. Um, I think there's something really special that's here already, and when I think about the potential of this community, it just gets me really excited. So it's a privilege to be with you guys today. As Tim said, my name's Jeanette, also known as JT. You can pick whichever one you want. Or sometimes I tell the little ones, Miss Wonderful is also, I will respond to that as well. Um, And actually, Shawnee feels a little bit like home in some ways. Um, Some of the members of my community group worship here. And then also, as we've been building up these new global team structures, I've been working with Jason Jay and with Jeff Boss um, and a whole other little crew that's coming around in that. So, um, yeah, it's been really fun, and I hope to meet you if, if we haven't yet met, maybe after after the service today. Um, as as Tim mentioned, we are in smack in the middle of um, this sermon series on God's heart for all people. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's been kind of surprising as we've slowed down and started to look at the narrative in Matthew, the, especially the narrative of Jesus coming, the genealogy, and the story of God's plan for rescue um, through the virgin birth, um, thinking of Nathan and, and Tim, who, who were leading us to see how God's heart for all people was woven in those chapters of Matthew. And, well, I guess in that one chapter, chapter one of Matthew. And um, it's just been so interesting for me to discover things that have always been there, but for them to be fresh and alive in new ways for me. Um, For example, I just had never thought of the birth story of Jesus as something that really intersected um, in a central way with his heart for all the peoples of the world. And what I've been finding is that, indeed, that's there. It's been there all along. And so I'm really looking forward as we um, pick up the text today in Matthew 2. Um, Go ahead if you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew 2. That's where we're going to be today. Um, And it's a a really fun moment and really fitting as well right before Christmas because this is the day when Jesus enters onto the scene here in Matthew. Officially, um, he's, he's on the scene. But here's the thing in Matthew. It's really fascinating because Matthew does not tell a traditional Christmas story. In the book of Matthew, there's no, there's no manger, there's no shepherds, Mary's not pondering in her heart. Um, it's kind of crazy. And I was thinking, it's even a little bit scandalous that he, he avoids all these images and pictures, the things that usually come to mind when we think about Christmas, and made me think of another recent Christmas scandal. So I wanted you to take a look at this. Folks, uh, you know, we're just past Halloween which means we're about to enter the magical season of getting angry that there's not enough talk about Christmas. <laughs> Jim? Starbucks is stirring up controversy over its plain red cups for the holiday season. Some evangelical Christians are very upset that the coffee giant is doing away with symbols of the season, like the snowflakes, the snowmen, and the other kind of ornaments. Yes, they got rid of the Christian religious symbols like snowflakes and snowmen. <laughs> I mean... 
I think we all remember the story of when baby Jesus was visited by the three wise Frosties. <laughs> and I can see why people might be all frothed up about this. Now Starbucks is completely devoid of any trace of the holiday besides the Christmas tree ornaments, advent calendars, CDs of Christmas music, Christmas-themed gift cards, Christmas cookies, and giant displays of their Christmas blend coffee. <laughs> Okay, I think I've seen that like four times, and I think it's still funny. <laughs> I mean, that was so crazy, wasn't it? Uh, what was actually not very fun was being a pastor and flying home on the day of the Starbucks fiasco, because, um, you know, nobody wants to be a pastor on the day that the Starbucks, you know, blood is shed over the Starbucks holiday card or holiday cups. Um, but actually, the reason I showed that film is that I wanted to just um, connect it to what's going on in Matthew. Um, again, it's so fascinating where he places our attention as we come to the text in Matthew 2. All of the characters and the scenes that we usually think about that are tied to Christmas are gone. There's no Mary in a donkey, no baby in a manger. There's not an angel choir. Even the few who do make it in, the three wise Frosties, I mean, <laughs> I mean the wise men, and notice he doesn't even tell us how many there are, um, they're showing up at the wrong time. They're not at the manger. Um, I don't know if you've noticed that before, but in this one biblical version of the wise men, in Matthew 2, um, these, these, these wise men come, and Jesus is probably six months, maybe closer to two years old. So Matthew's kind of rocking the boat. Move over, Starbucks. Matthew's rocking the boat. Um, what's going on here? What is he doing? Well, here's what he's doing. Matthew's placing the entire focus all of his attention here on the response to King Jesus. Look at how Matthew begins his text. Even when he starts in chapter 2, Jesus has already come. Now, after Jesus was born. And then the next 23 verses, he spends tracing the response, these various people who are grappling with the implications of this baby. And from the start, what we see in Matthew is that these responses are intense. They're vivid, they're diverse, they're, they're polarizing. For Matthew, Christmas is divisive. It might be the best day, or it might be the worst day, but it's not something in between. Again, this isn't usually how we think of Christmas, is it? You know, silent night, calm and bright. Matthew's version of Christmas couldn't be further away from that. The text in chapter 2 is almost a little bit over the top. And I think you're going to see this as we really just notice how he's crafting this message. Matthew's clearly placing very different responses right next to each other. He's also giving attention to the supernatural ways that God's at work. It's kind of the other set of Christmas miracles that you didn't know anything about or you never noticed before. Christmas, the arrival of this baby king divides people and it reveals radically different responses. And that's true even today. And maybe it's one reason they say that you shouldn't bring up God or religion at holiday parties, right? <laughs> but Matthew, he seems to have no fear. He marches us right past all the nativity fanfare, all the Christmas sentimentality. He parks us next to baby Jesus, and then he kind of waits for the fireworks to, to unleash. This is Matthew chapter 2. The arrival of this baby king divides, and it reveals... It reveals three kinds of responses. Those who blindly refuse, those who earnestly seek, and those who courageously trust. And only one of those responses is able to embrace 
the true gift, the full joy of, of Christmas, of this Messiah who's come to be a joy for all people. And my prayer is that today, as we look at this text together, that God would really make the story of Christmas alive and fresh for us. And I want to encourage you today to work hard to just suspend the version of the Christmas story you think you know, or you know the one you usually tell, um, and really open yourself up to what's here in this text in Matthew, and, and what Matthew's really saying, what God is really doing in and through this baby in Bethlehem. Um, so let's invite God's help with that. Will you, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to know all you're doing. We, we don't want to miss anything you have for us. Who are you? What are you doing? Father, we pray that you would just come and speak whatever word your spirit would have for us today. We pray that you'd reveal yourself to us in your ways. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first response we see in Matthew is that the arrival of this baby king reveals those who blindly refuse. After the mention of Jesus in verse 1, the next name we see there is King Herod. And let me just say, this guy was an egotistical mess. I mean, even if Matthew didn't spell it out here so clearly, he, we're going to get into Matthew's version of Herod. But there's plenty of historical facts available. This king, also known as Herod the Great, had a huge ego and a lot of craziness on the side as well. Wikipedia describes him as, and I'm, I'm quoting here, a madman who murdered his own family and a great many rabbis. That's the first sentence in Wikipedia. People said that it was better to be King Herod's dog than his wife because he killed less dogs than wives. This is pretty much sums it up. As Matthew narrates here, we see again his intentionality to place the story of Jesus, the person of Jesus, inside of a historical context. You, know, you can disagree with Matthew, with his message, how he interprets the events, but one thing you have to say is Matthew's got his facts straight. And from the start, it's clear that baby Jesus is causing a ruckus. King Herod's freaking out. Did you notice his response in verse 2? The king is troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. That word troubled is a strong word. Its meaning is more along the lines of being shaken or stirred. In the New Testament, it usually has a negative sense tied to kind of an emotional disturbance. It comes up five times in the Synoptic Gospels, and every reference is to an emotional shock in response to something God's done. And that's the implication here in Matthew. Not surprising, all of Jerusalem is a little on edge when this crazy king himself is troubled. As we continue to look a little closer at Herod, and I maybe I should say, what we're going to do is tra trace these responses through the characters in this text. So we're going to be with Herod for a while, then we'll transition to the wise men, and then we'll transition to Mary and Joseph. So as we continue on with Herod, taking a closer look at him, I want you to notice a strange paradox that Matthew sets before us. On one hand in this text, Herod is totally obsessed, fixated on baby Jesus. Every action he takes, every word, every choice, every edict, everything this king does is orbiting around this baby. And yet, in another way, Herod repeatedly and intentionally refuses to allow this baby in his life. And even as we'll see in a little bit, he refuses to allow the, this baby in the world. Without qualification, King Herod is determined to refuse him. 
And Matthew makes it so clear. And he even really highlights this this paradox of who Herod is and the way there's this magnetism, this draw to the baby, and yet this this resistance. And I want to take a look at those snapshots um, in verses 4 and 7 and 16. So we'll kind of skip around a little bit. First in verse 4, the first thing Herod does when the wise men come to him is to assemble together all the chief priests and the scribes. And he asks them, where's the Christ to be born? This is a fascinating situation here. So the king over this whole entire area here in Jerusalem, he calls together all of these elite priests and scribes. This is kind of like President Obama calling in senior advisors into the Situation Room to chase down a small-town birth announcement, right? So, so Herod brings these people together. And of course, the irony here is that the wise men, these non-Jewish magi, have been seeking after the child. But the resident experts, Herod and all these religious folks, they don't have a clue. But they do consult, they get out the records, the Hebrew scriptures, and they get the answer. And they get the right answer. The Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. And they, even, they even reference that hopeful prophetic word that Christ would be a ruler who would shepherd his people. So here it is. I mean, they've got the answer. They've got the true things in their hands. And yet neither Herod nor any from his court moved toward this king. That's the first snapshot. The second we find in verse 7. Right after this little advisory briefing, King Herod is beside himself. He's freaking out about this baby. He sends his advisors away, and immediately he summons the wise men, and he does this secretly. And here we see both Herod's pride and this obsessive insecurity as well, right? And after inquiring of the wise men what time they saw the star, Herod sends them on away to Bethlehem and commissions them to be his pawns. Go find the child and then come and report back to me. Both Herod's arrogance and foolishness are on full display. Matthew's just putting that out there for us. I think Frederick Buechner captures it really well when he says says these words, for all of his enormous power, Herod knew there was somebody in diapers more powerful still. The wisdom of the foolishness is perhaps nowhere better illustrated. And I think Matthew really kind of puts an exclamation mark on this absurdity. Throughout the text, he refers to Herod as King Herod, or the king, well, it's very clear that it's actually King Jesus who's calling the shots, right? And then the final snapshot in verse 16, after these wise men go on their way and, and they don't report back to King Herod, we see that he makes one last desperate grasp for his own kingdom and control. Look with me at verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Wow. It's crazy. It's it's an entire genocide of these little baby boys. It's heart-wrenching, this needless violence brought about by the edict of one man in government. Friends, there's about one word for this man, and it's a long word. It's hard to pronounce, but I will make myself try to say it because there's really no other word. This guy is a megalomaniac, okay? He's somebody who is obsessed with his own power, his own way, at all costs. Now, we may know a thing or two about these kinds of people, these kinds of leaders, maybe increasingly as those November elections draw near and all these parties come out of the woodworks. Sadly, this kind of ultimate power was never something that we were meant to bear. 
Matthew makes that clear as he narrates the rest of the story. Though Herod craved power, though he banked his life on it, it was never something within his grasp. Control was a mirage. It was a lie that Herod was unwilling to part with in order to see the truth. Have you ever struggled with this? Or have you ever struggled to see the truth? It's kind of a weird question, isn't it? I mean, we all want to say, no, I'm, re I'm reasonable. Look, if something's fundamentally true, if it's true things out there, I know it, I see it, fine, you know? But here's the problem with that, and I'm, I'm not sure how I should put this. The problem is, that's simply not true. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by those studies that measure the level of someone's confidence against the testimony they give. Have you ever seen those studies? They track the testimony of people who have responded after a crime or an incident happens, so the purse gets stolen or the fight breaks out, and then these witnesses come and tell what happened. They, they testify to the truth. Did you know that there's no correlation between how confident a witness is and the actual truth? That people testify to the non-truth what didn't really happen with as much confidence as they testify to the truth. Right? Sometimes even more confidence. As humans, I think we have a tendency to overstate our own capacity to know the truth. And even when we do all agree on something, you know, maybe a whole group comes together, this group, and says, we have a moral code. You know, we know it's wrong to cheat or it's wrong to lie. Even then, even when there's agreement on the truth, it's, it's so hard to live by that truth, to really embody it. You know, I'm guessing here on December 20th, we may not want to go around and tell everybody our last year's resolution, right? <laughs> I mean, actually, we're pretty good at breaking promises, right? And that's the thing about this struggle with, with blind refusal. It's blind. Often, we don't even see how or when we're missing God. But like Herod, when God sets his redemption before us, our inclination, our gut is to get troubled, not to get interested in how God's working. And I've been seeing this in myself so much recently. Um, I feel like actually, especially in the last couple of years, I've, I've just begun to see, and I'm sure it's just the first layers of how deep my blindness goes, you know? And um, of course, Part of that discovery has been, as I've noticed, just the sinful habits in my own life, the ways that I'm so quick to trust in myself for my happiness or fulfillment. But I've also been watching how this blindness affects me in ways that make me choose my own comfort over being with God in his redemptive work. And I do think that white Americans face a special challenge here. Those of us who find ourselves on the inside of more power and privilege in our culture you know, humanly speaking, we don't have a lot to gain from undoing the status quo. And actually, we have quite a lot to lose. You know, a lot of truth and history to acknowledge, a lot of repentance to offer, a lot of humility to learn. If we are really to journey with Jesus into the ways that he's working his salvation out amongst all people, his shalom, his restoration... Um, and it's uncomfortable to follow Jesus there. I think we're tempted to let our own safety or our, our wealth or our comfort be a functional God to us. And I can say that both as an American and as a white upper-class person, I'm, I'm clear on the fact that I'm so often blind. I'm blind from seeing how deeply God cares about those who are oppressed or those who struggle to put food on the table every day. I'm blind from seeing that God is already present and actively working 
and that he is the God, not me, for these brothers and sisters, these ones who often know him much better than I do. I'm blind to the fact that God not only cares about these people, but he cares also about the systemic injustice. And that sometimes it's my own blindness that actually perpetuates those, those injustices. I'm blind not only from seeing the people in these systems, but so often I'm blind from seeing my own blindness, right? I'm blind from seeing that when someone's different than me, maybe even walking into this space, a minority person, an immigrant, when, when they come into a room, even maybe unconsciously, I'm more likely to behave as if they're just not quite as competent or, or cool or not, even maybe not quite as human. Like, I don't acknowledge that, but in an unfiltered, honest moment of reflection, I can see how that blindness takes me captive. I'm blind from seeing how much I distance myself from others, how I insulate myself from their lives, and how my blindness benefits me at the expense of others. And in, in sharing about this today, I really, I don't want it to come off as like somebody just poking and trying to meddle, you know, that's not my, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip and I'm certainly not, not a big fan of public confessionals. But Matthew, he's so clear in this text. God's redemption didn't start with insiders or with people of privilege and power. And I, I do believe if we're going to open ourselves up to all that God's doing in Jesus, we must reckon with the scandal of a baby who came in obscurity and a God who came to be fullness of joy for all the peoples of the world. The message of Christmas is no less than this. That Jesus came to free us from our own blindness, our small world of self. He came to save, and not just theoretically, but really to open us up, to invite us and unleash us to be involved with him in what he's doing amongst all people. And the salvation of God is that we're wrapped up in the mission of God and what he's doing in the world. The light has come, and there will be some who blindly refuse. But Matthew now, as we look at these other two profiles he sets up in chapter 2, he'll say the starring roles of his narrative for these other responses. And that's the next place I want to take us to. Again, as we look through um, the Magi, the arrival of this baby king reveals those who earnestly seek. Matthew develops this response, as I said, through the Magi, and he places them from the start right alongside of King Herod. He doesn't want us to miss the stark contrast. This is part of what he's doing. Those two characters are foils to one another. They're exact opposites. Everything the king is, the wise men are not. Three examples of this. First off, Herod's an insider. He's comfortable with the Jewish traditions. He's networked with the priests and the teachers of the law. The wise men are not. They're not Jewish, culturally or religiously. They're not networked. They're outsiders, likely from Babylon, that country, remember, that conquered God's people when they were in exile. So that's the first contrast we see. The second one is that Herod is at home. He is, he's settled in a familiar context inside of his normal everyday working life. Um, but these wise men are displaced. Uh, many scholars believe that their journey to Jerusalem had them on foot for over 800 miles. And I think it's interesting just to reflect on how often God calls those who are earnestly seeking to be on the move and to understand all the ways that God can be working for people who are on the move. Third contrast 
Herod is consumed with himself and his kingdom. That's, this text is all about that. What does this child mean for me? The wise men, on the other hand, have an entirely different focus. Their entire gaze is outward. Their focus is outside of themselves. Even after they gain an appointment with the, the powerful king, this guy from Jerusalem, the wise men, they don't get a big head. They remain committed to this search. They are hoping in something beyond themselves. And then as Matthew continues to look at these, to show us these earnest seekers, we see another set of three here, three inputs that help the wise men get to Bethlehem. Uh, we mentioned this miraculous star. And people who have studied that, that brightly shining star, they, they put forward many different theories. You know, was it a comma? Was it a supernova? Was it a straight-up miracle? Um, and it's actually pretty interesting. I did some reading this last week. But in a way, it doesn't really matter. Because Matthew's whole point here, what he's, what he's pointing to is that it's God's intervention that are leading these searchers forward. These earnest seekers are being guided by God. And I think that often the story we tell of the wise men stops right there. But Matthew's version has more. It's more developed. These wise men, they were established guys. They were successful enough to be people of means, probably leading astrologers of their day. And their journey to Jerusalem it was guided by a star, yes, but it was also bound up with who they were, with their own study and vocation. These guys woke up every day. They went to work. They, likely, they charted the night sky. They worked through these questions, these theories they had. And it's not like they were out one night on a walk, and they saw a really bright star, and then they decided, oh, hey, let's hit the road. I mean, I think sometimes what, maybe what I brought to the text was more an imagination for a bunch of drunk hippies, you know, who saw a bright star and, and went on the road. That's not the picture Matthew gives. Their journey, this journey that would have taken many months' time, was, it was more than a whim. It was more than a superstition or magic. Again, they were earnestly seeking. And then the last thing Matthew makes clear is that without the Holy Scriptures, without a God who speaks to his people through specific revelation, these men may have never made it to Bethlehem. You know, I think that's also practical just to notice those inputs that, that were available to these earnest seekers. And whether we're here today as a professing Christian or we're walking on our own journey of discovery, these are the same inputs that are before us. And earnest seekers press forward using all these means. Uh, one last observation about the Magi. We tend to overstate their confidence or the knowledge that they had on the front end of their journey. You know, that's the thing about earnestly seeking. You, just, you don't know what you're going to find, right? When you're on a search, you don't know what you're going to find. Maybe you've heard before that these Magi packed up gifts that were fitting for baby Jesus. You know, the gold that would signify his deity, the frankincense and myrrh that were kind of foreshadowing his death. Um, it's unlikely. <laughs> I mean, these guys did not know what they were doing. They didn't understand the full implications. They packed their bags with the currency of the time and place. They set out, and they went out searching for this king that they'd heard about. One scholar I read this past week, I think, said it so well. They worshipped better than they knew. They did not know. They were seekers. But in contrast to Herod, they were humble and teachable. They were human and finite and vulnerable on a long journey, logging hundreds of miles only to arrive at their hopeful destination at Jerusalem. And instead of finding Messiah there, they found a maniacal king. I mean, can you imagine 
here they are, empty-handed, had this kind of questionable reception by the locals. There isn't a Messiah here. These guys are weary. They've journeyed a long way. They're worn out. But it's right at this point. It's right at this point where Matthew's gospel nearly takes our breath away. Beside dashed hopes, Matthew reveals the greatest irony in this text, that these earnest seekers are being sought. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Friends, it would be hard to script a more vivid picture of God's grace reaching back to those who are earnestly seeking. And such displays of God's grace are active today. That's what we've got to keep in mind. Have you ever thought about this fact that this is the Christmas miracle that keeps on happening over and over again? The Christmas isn't just about that first showing of God's light, but it's about a God who has continued to pursue outsiders to this very day, seeking after people everywhere in the world who are willing to honor this king. It makes me think of my friend Hossein. I met Hossein several years back um, during a trip to Kenya. Um, I remember when I saw him, he had the most joyful, exuberant smile. He's just like beaming. And I wanted to know his story. I wanted to know his story. So I went up to him and um, after a session, and through an interpreter, he told me that he had been a Muslim man living in the northeast of Kenya. Um, he had been living amongst an exclusively Muslim community. There were no Christians, um, no churches, having heard nothing of Jesus or the gospel in his life. Um, this was his context. And one day, Hussein fell asleep under a tree, and he had a dream in which Jesus appeared to him and revealed himself. And after this encounter, after this show of grace, Hossein placed his trust in Jesus. But as soon as he told others about this experience, this conversion, and his newfound joy in Jesus, he, he got beaten up. Everybody from the community gathered together. They took him out to a remote place. They beat him up and left him for dead. But God continued to intervene supernaturally in his life. God connected him with other Christians who found him and nursed him back to health. And they taught him more about Jesus and the gospel. And today, Hussein, as you saw, is um, smiling big and proud, you know. Um, And when I think of Hussein, I can't help but to think of the thousands of other Muslims who are coming to Christ in very similar ways. There's a recent book out. I would recommend it if if you have any holiday time. Um, it's a book that's, that traces these recent trends of God's work amongst Muslims. Um, it's a book called Wind in the House of Islam. And it recounts thousands of Muslims coming to faith in similar ways. There are dozens of movements like this across the globe. In the past decade, missiologists have documented 69 different movements of Muslims coming to Christ in droves. Many of these people placing their faith in Jesus after he appears to them in some supernatural way, like my friend Hussein experienced. And I I want us to really let that sink in, so I'm just going to repeat that information. In the first 12 years of the 21st century, so in the early 2000s, and tracing that for 12 years, there have been 69 movements where at least a thousand Muslims per movement have placed their faith in Jesus. That's 69,000 more joyful, smiling faces right alongside of Hussein. 
And similar movements are happening broadly, even beyond the Muslim world. Um, actually, in China, the Shawnee campus is matched up with a group called the China Partnership. And you'll be learning more about that as we continue to explore with the leadership and team members there. But it's a very similar kind of work of God, a movement of God calling people to himself. This baby in a manger was just the start of all that God was promising to do in Jesus. 1 Corinthians says that Christ was the first fruits, the first sign of redemption that God was working out in the world. And that same chapter goes on to promise that God will one day destroy every rule, every authority and power that set itself up against him. He will conquer the last enemy of death. This is the amazing joy of the redemption that's bound up in Jesus. Our Muslim brothers and sisters across the globe remind us that even today, this king is reigning and revealing himself to those who earnestly seek. But maybe even more than this, they point us to the final response that Matthew sets forward, and that is that the arrival of this baby king reveals those who courageously trust. And to show us this, Matthew zooms in on Joseph and Mary and again, we see a different set of miracles than we're used to seeing. We see miraculous dreams and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. These are the ways that Matthew starts showcasing this final response. By the time his chapter ends, he has, he has pointed to four different miraculous dreams and four different references to the Old Testament, this prophecy being, re, re, excuse me, this prophecy being fulfilled. And as Matthew uses these devices, he places that spotlight on Mary and Joseph. Um, these normal people who choose to follow him even when they don't understand, even when there's a cost, even when his plan seems too outrageous to be good or to be true. And surely Mary and Joseph are wrestling with all this, right? I mean, not only um, living through this crazy cycle of the newborn, you know, like where every day you get up and you care for this child who's eating and pooping and sleeping and then doing it all over again times a dozen, right? Surely there are some questions clunking around in their head. Is this the way for the Messiah to come forward? Um, and beyond that, as they continue to see and the text develops, develops these atrocities that are happening, just think of the irony, Mary and Joseph asking God, are you really here with us? Even as they're raising they're raising up Jesus, God's redemptive plan. So these questions, they plague them. But one day, when normal toddler, dirty diaper, ten, temper tantrum day, um, Mary and Joseph get visited, they get visited by, um, by these wealthy foreigners who have traveled a long, long way to pay honor to their child. And so here, they're thinking, okay, yes, maybe Joseph really did hear. Maybe he really got it. And, and this child, maybe he is destined to be the deliverer. That night, I can just imagine for the first time in months, they lay their head on the pillow and they just have peace about the, the plan of God, the redemption of God. But friends, it's short-lived. It's that very night. They get a call in the middle of the night. It's God. It's for Joseph. Well, technically, it's the, the angel of the Lord appearing in one of these dreams. And the angel arouses Joseph from his sleep. Joseph, King Herod is out to kill the child. Pack up your family and leave. Joseph knows these dreams well, right? By now, probably he's calling them nightmares by now, right? He wastes no time. Matthew makes it clear in verse 14, the family leaves that very night. Immediately, they trust God with courageous faith. These three don't wait till sunrise. They pack their bags. They leave their home behind. They leave behind their favorite tree, their food, their ways of preparing it. 
their Tuesday morning playgroup. How did Mary ever stop the fountain of tears as she learned about those little babies, those little precious lives that had been murdered by the king? And they would move on. Grief, grief would compound with the new terrain as, as Mary and Joseph, I'm sure, they felt more lost than ever before. You know, reading this text, I couldn't help but to think of the millions of refugees that are walking a really similar path today. You know, thinking of their loved ones back home, wondering if they're still alive, just trying to get food on the table, trying to keep their, their babies warm. It's the worst refugee crisis on record. The number of people that have been forcibly displaced at the end of 2014 was over 59 million. That's up by 20 million people in a decade's time. I wonder how many of those were warned by God to flee. How deeply God's heart breaks over this, this world's brokenness. And Matthew goes to pains to show that God is intimately involved. He's place-sharing in the darkest and most difficult spaces. But Matthew also goes to pains. He makes it crystal clear to show that God is not surprised, nor are God's plans thwarted by these atrocities. It's the opposite. This baby, this joy for all people, here in the chapter is supernaturally protected. And far from thwarting God's plan, God's redemption is furthered as we see more and more of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. The darkest and most desperate situations in their day and in ours, they're no match for this king. In verses 17 and 18, Matthew references specifically the weeping mothers of Bethlehem and says that their tears are the fulfillment of the weeping that started long ago in Israel. There's only one way that Matthew can speak of the weeping Bethlehem mothers as fulfillment of God's plan. He can do this because Matthew knows of a future day when every eye in Bethlehem will be wiped dry, when this baby, this one who escaped the nightmare of King Herod, will enter into his own nightmare on behalf of those Bethlehem mothers and sons. A scene even darker than this night, when the Son of God will cry out from across, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that will not be the end. Three days later, this king will rise again. Having defeated death, he'll begin his glorious reign that will culminate one day in the greatest of all joys, as people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation come together and cry out together loudly in one voice. Isn't that fascinating? They still have all their, their people distinctives. They're coming from all these tribes and nations, but they come and cry out together in one voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, this is the Christmas story. The baby Jesus turned king of kings. It's a shocking account. It's a divisive message, but it's more than that. It's history. It's a God who has entered the world in this way, in this vulnerable and real way, to make his salvation accessible to all the peoples of the world, to suffer and die in our place so that we could be raised up with him into the joy of this Christmas story. As we transition and move toward the end of our service time, um, we're going to have a time of communion. And I think it's a really unique and, and just a nice opportunity to tangibly respond to what we see Matthew setting forward today in the text. And I want to take just a few minutes to invite you to reflect on these different responses we've seen and even how God may be speaking to your heart today. Um, just an invitation to consider, is there anything that's troubling you? Is there a way in which 
you're feeling yourself resist God. Um, maybe you feel like today you have been blind. You've been a little too comfortable um, to open yourself up to God or how he may be working. Maybe you've been scared. I think there's a reason why often God greets people with, with that greeting, fear not. The scriptures remind us that perfect love drives out fear and that God loves us perfectly. Today, as we participate in communion, will you invite the light of the world to shine his love in your heart, to shine his wisdom? Maybe today you're here and you think of yourself more as being someone who's an earnest seeker today. You're not totally refusing the redemption of God, but also you're not completely convinced, not sure if it's something you can get on board with. Maybe you don't even know if there really is a God. I just invite you to invite God to speak to you today. Again, he could use so many ways, supernaturally intervening. He could speak to you through scripture, through thoughts and conversations. If you're needing to know that this God is seeking after you, I invite you just to tell him that today. And then finally, this last category, maybe you're here today and, and you would identify as somebody who's following God, or right now that's kind of your default response mode, but what you're feeling is um, that it's scary, or there's something that's going on in your life that's requiring a lot of courage. You know, maybe it's simply that you haven't been embracing the fullness of his mission. Uh, maybe right now there are some things that are distracting you, other lights that seem brighter than his light. Um, maybe it's a season of grief for you, and you just need to know that God is with you. Wherever you are today, I just want to invite you, there will be just some quiet space, but use that as a space to let God speak a word of courage to you, remembering that your Savior has conquered sin and death and is reigning even now as the King who restores all the broken things. Um, just a couple practical instructions. Uh, we don't ask, um, you, you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to, to participate in communion. We welcome everybody who follows Jesus to come and partake. You'll see there's two stations up here, and it's as simple as coming to the front, and we'll invite you to gather in small groups of four or five people, and then when you're there, you can take the bread, dip it in the juice, and then partake together as a group. And maybe you're here today, and um, you've not placed your faith in Christ, but Communion today would, would be for you a first step of saying, I want to make a step of really moving from this blind refusal into a place of courageous trust. Wherever you are, of course, um, you're welcome just to, to pray and, and just reflect in your seat as well. Um, so this king invites you to come. Please come and join with him in communion.